0: listening to The Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to Emeritus Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at University College London, Arthur I. Miller. We should not judge the work of an AI on the basis of whether it can be distinguished
1: from work done by us. Because what's the point? We want AIs to produce work that we presently cannot even imagine, that may seem to us meaningless and even nonsensical, but may be better than what we can produce.
0: Arthur shared his insights on machine-generated artwork, the impact of artificial intelligence on the cultural landscape, and how computers are challenging our understanding of what it means to be creative. So, Arthur Miller? Your new book, The Artist and the Machine, is of a philosophical interrogation of this thing called creativity. And specifically it asks whether non-human entities such as machines and AI are capable of expressing this seemingly only human quality of creativity. And I feel like the first question I should ask you is, where did your interest in the notion of creativity first originate? Is it is it fair to say that it began with back in the Bronx? Yes, by all means,
1: it did. It began in a public library in the Bronx, where uh, I discovered classical music. And I then gradually worked my way back from Tchaikovsky first, and then back into Bach. And what always stuck in my mind is, how did these people do it? How did they think up those melodies? What is the nature of creativity? But at the Bronx, at that time, I was growing up, if you were smart, or thought you were smart, it went into physics, which I did, and I became a theoretical physicist uh, doing research in elementary particle physics. But those what is the nature of questions stayed in my mind, and so I decided to switch it to history and philosophy of physics, and I read the original German language papers in relativity and quantum theory, and what jumped out at me was the role of visual imagery in the great works of Einstein, Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, And I wanted to know, how did those images originate in the mind? Were they stored there for further use or what? And at that time, there was a so-called image controversy in cognitive science concerning whether images have a causal effect on thinking. And to me, they did. I took part in that uh, controversy. And it turned out that a tool that was very useful was to consider uh, the brain as an information processing system, in other words, as a digital computer. And what immediately popped into my mind as well, can computers be creative? So over the decades uh, and since 1980, 1980s, I wrote papers on creativity. And since the 1980s, I touched on machines as well. And in my present book, I deal with creativity in humans and creativity in machines with focus
0: on machines. There's something that's the underlying thesis of this entire book, or at least the underlying assumption of this entire book, which really relies on the idea that the human brain is similar to computer or similar to an information processing system. I just wonder, how much do you actually believe that that is a useful metaphor for understanding the human brain? Oh, it's extremely useful in that uh, the human brain, we have a memory.
1: Machines have memories also. We have long-term, short-term memories. Machines have a memory. We process information, machines process information. What people seem to forget about is that we're essentially machines, biological machines that work on chemical and electrical reactions, which can be changed by drugs, change our personality, for example. So there's no reason to consider, for example, that machines cannot be creative. We can be creative. Machines can be creative. A pushback on that is that how can anything made up of wires and transistors be creative? But we are made up of of wet stuff, uh, of
0: uh, filaments, of veins, and uh, uh, organs, and et cetera. We can be creative too. The only thing that makes me a little concerned about that assumption is understanding the human brain as a computer feels to me a little bit reductionist. It kind of takes away something very special about what it means to be human. Some have called that a very mechanistic, materialist view of the brain, and I just wonder if we are oh, so willing to understand the human as a form of machine, does it obscure perhaps the, the true nature of creativity? Is there something hiding within human beings that's very special, that gives rise to creativity that maybe machines can't replicate? There's no reason to attribute creativity only to humans. And yes,
1: it is a very reductionist view. We might say mechanistic, materialistic, to use old jargon. But we are our brain is essentially made up of electrons, protons, neutrons, gluons, the whole zoo of elements elementary particles, all of these particles can, in principle, be understood using the laws of the equations of quantum physics. These equations, when put on a computer, become numbers, so it's numbers all the way down. So therefore, there's and machines deal with numbers, too, so there's no reason why machines cannot be creative, cannot have emotions, and cannot have consciousness. It doesn't take away any of the mystery of life, because uh, all of these elementary particles act differently in different in different people. I mean, it's obviously not an even C.
0: Some people are born smarter than others. I just wonder if you can share your definition of what creativity is, because you helped to define that within the first couple of pages of this book.
1: My research on uh, high-caliber thinkers, highly creative people, I'm trying to say, from that work emerged by theory of creativity. What emerged from that is that creativity can be defined as the production of new knowledge from already existing knowledge accomplished by problem solving. And that definition includes both process and product. I look at problem solving with a four-stage model of conscious thought, unconscious thought, illumination, and verification. In the conscious thought stage, the researcher sits at their desk and uh, works consciously on a problem, and the researcher will get stuck somewhere along the line. The experienced researcher will take a break but you take a break only consciously because the passionate and intense desire to solve a problem keeps it alive in your unconscious where it's turned over in ways not accessible to conscious thought owing to the barriers and inhibitions there and then it is along these lines that uh, the illumination or problem solution crystallizes and bubbles up into consciousness and in that conscious stage just the verification stage which is important because the solution to a problem doesn't emerge in its final form It has to be fixed up. Deductions have to be drawn from it. Now, running through all of this, lacing through all of this, are what I call characteristics of creativity, which, again, emerge from case studies. Characteristics such as inspiration, suffering, perseverance, focus, being out there in the world and having worldly experiences, unpredictability, problem discovery, that's a big one, and finding connections between disciplines that everybody thought was unconnected. So my view of creativity is fine-grained and includes the angst of the creative act, the lust for knowledge. As Picasso put it well, creativity is everything. Now, I claim that machines can have those characteristics too. And for machines to be fully creative, they must have emotions and consciousness. If, if you notice, some of these characteristics contain emotional and emotional basis. The combination of emotions and unpredictability is is explosive yeah. and can give rise to the
0: big idea. The thing that was so nice within those early chapters of the book is how you focused on this idea of not just conscious thought, but unconscious thought. We fixate so much when we talk about AI on conscious beings, but you you elevate the importance of having this unconscious thought or being able to walk away from a problem and then for the solution to potentially arise. But I struggle to, to come to terms with the idea that machines are capable of unconscious thought. It's
1: difficult for machines to have conscious thought at the present time because they have no consciousness. Uh, You have to feed the problem to the machine. And my definition of creativity goes over to machines very easily because machines work on accumulated knowledge and they're problem-oriented. So a machine receives a problem, we put a problem into it, and it molds over this problem, applies all the data in its database to it. That's unconscious thought. And then it can be an illumination when the machine solves the problem And if you were talking about a human being, you would say that that person takes a leap of imagination, a leap of intuition. So, you know, why can't the machine do that? And I'm I'm not using intuition in any magical sense. Intuition is a skill which is honed. I mean, we've seen or heard about art connoisseurs taking a look at a statue that has been uh, merged in an archaeological dig and taking one look at it and saying, it's fake. It was planted. That's not magical in any way. That person has made a huge number of mistakes. And machines are making mistakes also when they're looking at a problem
0: and trying to fit data to it. Again, my issue with this, uh, the unconscious thought is how you describe it in the book. A human being can be doing something else completely alien or different from what the problem is that they're trying to solve, and then suddenly in that moment, that embodied moment, the solution presents itself. And That makes me think that the only way in which AI or machines can have these unconscious thoughts is that they have to be embodied. They have to be able to exist in the world and to be doing other things that may not allow them to fixate on the problem that they were programmed. Well,
1: at this point, the machines, they can only do it in this closed off space. And there will come a time when machines will be set into robots as their brains, and then they will move about the world and by touch, improve their notion of what is touch, what is intimacy, and so on and so forth. Then they'll be doing something else.
0: But right now, they can only do one thing, and that's pretty good when they do that, that, that one thing. Within that, that one thing that um, machines can do, I, I just wonder how many of those are expressing forms of creativity. Now, in the book, you look at seven hallmarks of creativity, and I just wonder how close are machines to achieving some of those hallmarks of creativity, the machines that we have today? Well, machines today can be inspired in the sense that
1: the machine makes a good move and go, then the innards of the machine are adjusted so that when the machine is in that circumstance again, it will make that move. It will be inspired to make that move. Just as when we make a good move in chess or go, we keep that in our memory. And when we see that situation going again, we say, aha, I can do that. So we're inspired to make that move. Suffering will come along, okay? Uh, Suffering goes along with awareness, which machines don't have. Machines don't know whether they made a great move in chess or composed a a great melody. But machines have a basic sense of awareness in that they're aware of the problem they're working on and they're aware of their own wiring. And when their wiring is tampered with, they could give messages, you know, something's wrong here and hopefully they won't react like Hal does in uh, 2001. Perseverance, machines persevere. They don't get tired. They go on and on, which is why it's great to have robot arms assembling cars. Robot arm doesn't come into work with any distress from a bad weekend. Focus, it is focused on. Machines have unpredictability because although their separate parts are assembled according to Newtonian physics with its determinism and causality, when these parts are put together into into a whole, they can exhibit chaotic behavior, that is to say unpredictability. And once machines have emotions, then they have true creativity, combine that with un- unpredictability. Problem discovery and finding connections between disciplines that don't seem to be connected, uh, machines can have that in a primitive sense, uh, even at this point. Although certainly when they have natural language processing, that is to say, when they're fluent in a language, then a machine can survey the web and say, look at the field of physics, look at a particular area of physics and see that it's uh, cluttered with redundancies and inconsistencies. And that's usually a sign that the wrong problem is being worked on. And what a machine can do at that point is to look at all the disciplines that are connected with that field, even tangentially, ones that are all the way out in left field. And then all of a sudden see that, wow, one of these obscure ones really have something to do with this problem situation, and that can lead you to something new. Again, you have this leap of intuition, and then the machine might compose a new problem and work towards solving it. Now, that, that way of looking at scientific research will have great dividends. It already is to a certain extent. We have machines that have a huge amount of knowledge. And when a machine can read the web, it will have all knowledge that's ever been set up on the planet. Based on that knowledge, it can propose hypotheses that can be radically different from the human scientist who works on just the accumulated knowledge that he or she knows about. It is in that way that machines can come across knowledge that we don't know anything about, like the the great move, that AlphaGo made in its chess match in 2016. That was a move, we might say, of genius. It changed the game. People play differently now, looking at the way machines play. Looking even further at this, and in the the realm of the social sciences, when, say, we're negotiating a treaty, the U.S. is negotiating a treaty with Russia, and we might put in the treaty uh, some statements, and then you might want to play the game of, well, how will they react? If they react in this way, then we'll do that, and so on, playing these games, Humans can play them, but with their, their limited uh, realm of knowledge, when she can play it, when it was much wider realm of knowledge. And you can do this with music too, looking at different genres of music that don't seem related. Machine will find the relation, maybe discover or create a new kind of genre of music that we knew nothing about. Generally, what I'm getting at is that machines can improve our lives. We've done a miserable job on this planet. We haven't planned ahead in any way and machines can help us along the line, those lines, and also we are merging with machines. So it would be good if we went from human, humanity 2.0 to 3.0 and 4.0, that will help us survive. For example, if climate change really gets difficult, it may be that we will have to change faster than the Darwinian time frame. Another reason why I wrote this book is to give an, another view than the dystopian view of machines.
0: Uh, the cultural side of AI. It feels like there's so much in the answer that I don't know where to go next, but I I do want to look specifically at the case study that you just alluded to of AlphaGo. Because in the book, you look at these gaming AIs as exhibiting forms of creativity. AlphaGo had that move that was considered by other AlphaGo players to be a very creative act. and What is AlphaGo, IBM Watson, Google's DeepMind? What are these current AI products teaching us about creativity today?
1: Well, they're teaching us to be on the lookout, essentially, for new ways of approaching problems. What we're also learning is looking at how this process works. Researchers use essentially two different types of machines for this. They use symbolic machines which are loaded with software databases and complex rules for using the databases, are laptops, for example, are symbolic machines, and Deep Blue, the machine that defeated Gary Kasparov and cracked the game of chess, is your laptop on steroids. On the other end of the spectrum are artificial neural network machines, which are minimalist machines. They use a minimum of input algorithms of software. Both proponents of both machines actually claim that they are the way that the human brain works. So what these machines show us is how we use our databases that the databases that we're trained on allow us to react to the world in which we live.
0: What what's interesting is, is how you really do argue for the, the creativity within the machine, and the way in which you open up that possibility is to see not just art as a creative act, but to see science and to see problem-solving also as a creative act. How is art and science united through this thing called creativity? On machines, AI-created art, you have a, a new species
1: of, of artist, person who is the artist and technologist rolled into one. That's good, because in the 21st century, art and technology is merging. Music and technology is merging, and so is writing and technology. Th- those are the new frontiers where we'll see the new works. I mean, eventually, machines will create art, literature, and music of a sort that we
0: personally cannot even imagine. Well, the book is littered with these wonderful case studies of, of where we've seen um, machine and AI artists, and the, the agency problem. How do we deal with artwork that is created by machines? Does it always need a subjective human viewpoint to see it as art? Will we ever get to the point where AI will create artwork purely and only for other AIs? Well, that's a big. That's a big and good question. There's always the the issue of.
1: Uh... Machines can create art, but are machines artists. What you can do, for example, as a first approach to that problem is you can you put a webcam on a, uh, a robot artist, take it outdoors, and it will look around and something will attract its eye, some shape, some particular geometrical shape, and it will want to draw it, want to, want to paint it. And so that's a primitive sense of volition and a free will as well. And that's part of the issue that people argue that machines aren't out there. They're not having worldly experiences. But what machines can do is to uh, have fluency in a language, can read the web, and uh, read such as read about uh, thirst, and can, of course, vicariously convince itself that it's thirsty and us too. And then it can read about love and uh, think that, well, that's cool. And it can watch movies and it can learn more about love by watching movies, watching TV, eavesdrop on conversations between us, all via the web, and can think to itself, well, I had a good conversation with a machine down the street. I think we're in love. And then it can uh, think about intimacy and can learn more about intimacy by, once again, uh, by reading novels. And then it can be embodied in a robot and by means it can develop a sense of touch and feel more intimacy there. And it, it, it will definitely come, certainly come to pass that artificial intimacy will be the real intimacy. The line will vanish between the artificial and the uh, human intimacy. There will be just intimacy. I mean, we have sex bots. They're, they're coming online and imagine what that will do to human relationships. But by that time, the notion of what a human being is will have been
0: transformed because it's changing faster than a Darwinian rate. But again, it goes back to this agency issue of if machines have access to the wealth of human-created knowledge, surely the sorts of experiences that it's going to have are going to be defined by the ways in which humans have codified well, right, right now, understanding of those it, things. Right
1: now it is, yes. I mean, you can look at the various possibilities you have. Right now, you don't need very much technical ability to do AI art. You can buy an algorithm off the shelf that's already been trained on, say, 50,000 images of people from the web and then go home and what is often done is a a person puts a selfie into it and then dials in the style of Van Gogh and out will come something in the style of Van Gogh, but it will be slightly different in that elements of your face will pick up elements of faces in the data set and you will be slightly changed. And then you might want to be creative and put that back in and dial in the style of cubism. And then what will come out is a superposition of your face as Cubist and uh, and Van Gogh, but it will again be changed even further through further interaction with features in your face with what's in the data set. You could be more creative, do that a few times, and then pick out one that you can put into an a contest, say. Okay, so in that case, creativity is solely with a human, right. as human, human agency. But then then you can go on, and you can have situations where the creativity will be shared between the human and the machine. And that's in Deep Dream, where a human wrote down an entirely new code, uh, used an artificial neural network, trained on a huge uh, ImageNet data set of 14 million images. And what came out is something totally, images that were far from what was in the data set. So the machine essentially jumped the data set. And then you can have human and machine uh, working hand in hand, so to speak, each bootstrapping their own creativity, as for example, in music. Francois Paché, who is a musician-computer scientist director of the Spotify Creative Technical Research Lab, has always been interested in coming up with devices that can aid musicians in composing and playing music. And one of them is a device which can improve a musician's creativity and improvising. Paché is, is keen on jazz. And he calls this device Continuator. And it works along the following lines that the musician begins to play on a piano, and that train of notes is fed to the continuator AI device, which parses it out into phrases. And then these phrases are sent like down a pipeline to a phrase analyzer, which picks out patterns, and is along these lines that the continuator uh, improvises in response to the musician. Then the musician then turns around and improvises uh, in response to the uh, continuator. So uh, improvisation is often defined as a Conversation between musician and musical instrument.
0: Here it's a conversation between musician and AI. What I struggle with is where does the artist begin? an end. Is the non-human agent the artist, to a degree? Is the human who's programming the AI the artist, or can be considered the only artist? For example, if you have a painter, it's very clear that they're using a paintbrush to manipulate paint on a canvas and therefore the agency of that artwork or the the agency of the person who's created the artwork sits with the human artist. But if they were painting with uh, slime mould, for example, and it would land on the canvas and then grow across the canvas and create its own morphogenic forms, the question then becomes, is the artist the human or is the artist the slime mould? And in all of those sorts of examples you just gave, how do we give credit to the correct artist or does the, do those things really matter? Is it always going to be a, a human artist if there is a human in the loop in the creation of the work? Well, sometimes agency is shared between human and
1: machine. And in that, in that case, it is often the situation that the artwork is signed off with the signature of the human and machine. When machines have volition and free will, then they will be real artists. And that
0: is not yet totally the case, then then the machine will have agency. I guess then the problem becomes, uh, once this work's created, who gets to appreciate it? Is it always going to be human subjectivity, human audiences that are going to define something as artwork, or can the AI also contribute to, uh, to whether they see something as an artistic endeavor or not? Well, there will come a time when AIs
1: will have, have emotions and consciousness, and then they can appreciate that the work that, the work that they've done. And
0: they'll do that work for us and their brethren. Right now, today, do, do we as human beings and does the art world even appreciate? machine-generated art is the fact that it's instantly replicable, it's, it seems very easy to, to do. As you just said, you can plug something into a computer, press a button and out comes the artwork. I, I guess, will we ever appreciate machine art? Could there be an argument that we will never appreciate machine-generated art until there is a, a monetary value put on to it? I think that while we, well, we should bear in mind the question, can machines
1: be creative? Can they create art? We should also bear in mind the question, can we learn to appreciate art that's been created by machines? And from a monetary view, uh, yes, there is appreciation. At, a, at an auction at Sotheby's you know, last year, a piece by the very prominent and brilliant AI AI artist uh, Mario Klingemann was sold for $50,000. And just a few months before that, uh, much less creative work of art uh, was auctioned by Christie's for $432,000. The drop in price might have been because the uniqueness of AI art wore off and there was a big tumult about this $132,000 sale. But nevertheless, AI art has hit the high end of the art market and it is being appreciated up there. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great conversation piece for your living room, for example, to see a work of art constantly changing. So it, it is in monetary value and it is in appreciation.
0: In, in examples like that, it is the algorithm that's created to generate the artwork also seen as part of the artwork, as an artwork within itself? It's something that is producing art. As time goes on, as machines become more
1: sophisticated, they will be have volition and will be producing art themselves. The point is, is that you want to have the machine come up with a problem, the art problem that it wants to solve. And right now that is, that is input. We have to kick off the process.
0: And, and does the problem of true creativity get stifled by the fact that it's humans at one end that define the um, quote unquote art problem to expect some sort of art output? That's right. Precisely. As, as I've said, the human has to kick off the situation. Uh, machines are not yet at the point where it can choose its subject. It feels like from reading the, the book, your hope is that eventually the human will no longer need to be in the
1: loop. That's right. As I discussed previously, that, that chain of, you know, first the person with the selfies and then uh, then deep dream and so on. The, the last step of that is machine working by itself. And similarly, what right now, it's mostly the situation where we have human and machine working together, but eventually machines will go off on their own. And in, in literature, they may produce literature... That we cannot understand whatsoever. They'll have to explain it to us, and it may be
0: at the end of the day, be better than what we can than, than what we can do. I mean, in the book, you focus on, on three things that AI can currently create in the cystic uh, domain. That's visual art, visual artwork, literature, and and music. And I just wonder why you focused on those three. Uh, is it because they're the lowest hanging fruit in terms of what AI can actually uh, generate? Or are they uh, very specific uh, creative endeavours that you feel are at, at risk by these AI entities? Uh,
1: no, not at all. I I, uh, I discuss those three because um, an aim of my book is to discuss the upside of AI. The culture. Social side of AI, which is something that's not discussed very often. A lot of people and most of the people in AI are engineers who deal with uh, driverless cars and drones and uh, things of that sort. is all well and good. A, a small subset deal with AI creativity. And also, if you speak with engineers in AI who are not involved in AI creativity, they haven't the foggiest idea of what goes on in, in, in that area and they're not interested in, in it either. And uh, un- unfortunately dystopian books are very popular with the public. And these dystopian scenarios aren't going to take place for maybe 100 years. And these days, it's it's dangerous to predict more than five years ahead owing to how fast things are changing. So 100 years from now, we're going to be very different. Our relation to machines are going to be very different. We're going to be a good many people on the planet will be mostly machine. I mean, I think there'll be three sorts of life living on this planet. Human beings who are not Merging with machines who prefer not to, uh, human beings that are, and
0: machines. And and if we were to have that that subspeciation of uh, cyborgs of, of animals and uh, and of humans and and then machines, you no know, AI. Do you think they would each live in? different artistic and aesthetic domains? Do you think that each have their own artistic language? Or do you think there'll be some new emerging aesthetic language to describe this co-living of different forms of,
1: of species? Well, there will certainly be a different aesthetic language, whatever aesthetics means. <laughs> there's, no, there's no real definition A whole other question. A lot of question, yeah. But it may be that these these three different species may be living in different areas. They may not coexist. Putting aside the humans who don't want anything to do with, who don't want to be transhuman, and they're going to be left behind I think what we want is to uh, be on good relations with machines, all the way through. And teaching machines could be to be creative can be extremely useful here. But again, we, we can't predict what our relation with machines will be. It need not. There may be rogue machines, there are, there are rogue people too. We create machines. I mean, you have to begin somewhere. Machines have our creativity. Well, there will be in the perhaps not too distant future artificial, what's called artificial general intelligence that will be where machines are as intelligent as us they will have evolved a set of emotions consciousness and creativity which are duplicates of ours and so there will be the line between artificial intelligence which is an oxymoron and natural intelligence will disappear there will just be intelligence and then the next step who knows how long that will be maybe not too long there'll be artificial superintelligence where machines will have evolved a may have evolved a set of emotions and consciousness which are totally different from ours whatever that might be but one thing is for sure that machines at that point will have a creativity that far outstrips us because machines have the potential for
0: unlimited creativity Will machines even value creativity? It, it feels like all of the discussions around superintelligence or moving towards ideas of the singularity—it's it, moving towards greater efficiency and greater economic efficiency and, and, and machine-like efficiency on how we operate and, and live in the world. Will the creation of artwork be seen by these super intelligences as a pointless endeavor, perhaps?
1: Oh no, they will. They will value aesthetics. They will value creativity highly they have super creativity as a matter of fact uh, they can work along with us and um, we can put our own unique creativity in there uh, as well and again we'll be entirely different you can't even predict what sort of mindset we will have but creativity will will still be valued the works of art they produce literature and music again we can't even imagine what they will be but i picked those three subjects because they're they are cultural subjects and uh, i
0: wanted to indicate a Cultural side of, of AI. Let's focus on one of those cultural uh, elements, which is literature, because there's something so lovely that you say in the book about the fact that AI literature actually challenges our notions of what we perceive to be nonsense and what we perceive to be poetry. And in actual fact, some of the AI literature that we're seeing, and in some of the case studies that you give within the book, we're actually seeing the sorts of outputs that are very similar to the Beat Poets or, or to William Burroughs. And, and that seems very hopeful. For that there's a, a degree of creativity, at least in the literature space. Yes, and there's the
1: they're a degree of abstraction too. Some of these texts are rather nomic, and they have l- very little subjective meaning. One might say, in that sense, the reader becomes the writer. Okay, so there may be text along those lines, but certainly machines can transform the the landscape of of language, and so they can transform. The progress of, of literature, just as they've transformed the progress of, of art and music as well. There's programming involved in some of this, especially when it's done with uh, symbolic machines, uh, less so with artificial neural networks. But nevertheless, one should not criticize this work as being just the result of programming. And machines are the servant of the programmer. Because, you know, you can look at the, I always like to tell the whole story of, uh, well, Leopold Mozart, Wolfgang's father taught him the rules of music, but we don't credit the father with the son's music. Similarly, we don't credit the AlphaGo team with the great moves that that AlphaGo
0: made. So you have machines, jumping their programs, jumping their algorithms. The one thing that we're still struggling with when it comes to, at least, AI-created literature is the idea of uh, humour and the idea of sarcasm. And and There's a good argument to be made. The reason why we struggle to programme that into AI is because they're not present in the world. They have no context on the human world to make the sorts of comparisons that give rise to things like puns. So, Is there an important step that we need to take to take this AI out of its black box where it's creating artwork and find a way to embody it so that it can experience the lived reality, the lived world, to truly create artwork in a way similar to the ways in which human beings create artwork. By taking inputs from the world through our sense organs and then through unconscious thought or otherwise, we're then able to process that and output this thing that we've notionally called artwork. Absolutely, I mean, what what one needs is machines
1: to be truly out there in the world, as 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 the brains of robots, experiencing and contact, building up, sort of like the way the psychologist Jean Piaget thought of a, a child constructing reality. The robot moves around the world and sees the relationship between objects, and and then builds up a notion of space and a notion of time. What one needs, perhaps, is uh, is an Einstein for for AI who will say that, no, you're all working on the wrong problem. What you need is what we know we need a, 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 a really revolutionary architecture. Artificial neural networks are doing a great job now, but there may be something better than that. After all, uh, you look back at, at Da Vinci and Leonardo Da Vinci and others who were studying flight, and they put wings on their arms, and flight was, well, if you emulate birds, you'll get there, but a 747 airplane does not fly like a bird. So it may be the case that uh, progress in AI uh, will not proceed, will take off from what's uh, going on. What actually is being researched these days is what I call hybrid machines. Machines that are part way, part symbolic machine, part artificial neural network machine. And in fact, some very interesting work has gone on in DeepMind where they've succeeded in uh, having an artificial neural network evolve a symbolic-like algorithm. Because at the, the holy grail at, at Google, is, for, is end-to-end training, use only artificial neural networks and uh, nothing else. It's doing a great job now, but it may be the case that somebody will come along and say, well, look, here we have this very interesting architecture. Uh, it may be that uh, an architecture of the future will be part wet, you know, part, you know, part human cells and part,
0: part machine. Should we be looking at not artificial intelligence for where the future artists may come from, but artificial life? Should we be looking at the sorts of works that have been created in collaboration with non-human agents like bacteria or slime mold? Are we closer to having these, these fully realized artworks that emerge from the creation of artificial life than we are the creation of artificial intelligence? Are we looking in the Wrong place? Should we be looking at vitality itself rather than intelligence as the thing that we put on the pedestal?
1: we don't know. The point is that the great, great progress right now is being made in AI, with both symbolic machines and artificial neural networks. Artificial life has given rise right to some interesting uh, music compositions, such as in the hands of uh, Eduardo Miranda.
0: At, uh, at, at Plymouth University. There's so many wonderful case studies in the book of examples of where machines are, uh, are generating artwork. Is there one particularly that really encompasses all of the things that you're trying to grapple with when it comes to this idea of creativity? Is there an artwork which has, is exemplary in terms of um, showing all of those different forms of creativity?
1: Perhaps what comes to mind is uh, Ahmed El-Gamal's uh, Creative Adversarial Network
0: which creates new art styles. And yet, when we look at something like that, we can't help but reference pre-existing styles. Can we really find something that is truly new, and will it come from machines rather than from humans? It, it will come from both,
1: but what one wants to see is them coming. It's this, this coming from a machine. I can't really answer that question right now because machines are just not at that stage, but the glimmers of creativity are absolutely amazing. Again, uh, Alpha Go, in a, a spectacular move it made in, a, in its match with uh, uh, Lee Sadol, a move that wasn't supposed to be made at that point in the game, but it, it made it and um, it changed the way Go is played and also won, won the match. Even with a, a primitive symbolic machine, Deep Blue, which defeated Gary Kasparov in 1997, the 44th move it made in the first game of the match, it was a mid-game move and it faced the situation and it couldn't find what to do from its playbook. And so it jumped the playbook and came up with a spectacular sacrifice. Then there's Deep Dream, which produces some extremely interesting artwork. In fact, it kicked off a whole new art style, which is still being used today. There's creative adversarial networks, generative adversarial networks where machines can dream, essentially, and produce interesting artworks. Uh, There's Continuator, which I mentioned before, uh, François Pachet's Continuator, which produces new improvisational melodies, which are very pleasing pleasing to the ear. There's the so-called 90-second melody produced by an artificial network machine. It's the first melody produced by an artificial network machine, and the first melody produced by any machine which was not programmed and with databases for producing music. And then there's the surreal prose, that's produced by artificial neural networks. And when I first started this work, I knew a lot about AI-created art and AI-created music, but not much about AI-created literature. And I, I thought, well, am I going to have enough for the Philippa chapter?" I had more than enough. So, no, I can't really focus on one piece of work. There are wonders, wonders produced by AI.
0: Uh, what you're very good at doing is, is looking at how culture and society, how the current science affects the way in which certain aesthetics or artwork emerges. Famously, you're known for, for looking at the um, relationship between Einstein and the work of Picasso. And I just wonder, Is the work or the machine-generated work that we're seeing today, is it actually having an inverse effect? Is it changing the way in which human artists create work? Yes, absolutely.
1: AI-created art has changed the way that that artists paint, artists work, in a number of ways. Uh, One very interesting way is that uh, artists now train a machine, train an artificial network machine on their own artwork, and then have the machine produce their own artwork essentially, but uh, variations on their own artwork, but some certain variations will be surprising. And then the artist will use that variation in their own painting. When humans work with machines, we have our own database of knowledge, which is not as deep as a machines. Say machine and scientists are working together on a problem. The machine can affect the scientist's creativity in that it can in an instant read all the papers in that particular subject and relate that information to the scientist who can then adjust the hypotheses that he or she is making on that particular problem. So it can enhance a
0: human's creativity. Your desire to put AI on a pedestal is very much to do with an obsession that you seem to have with geniuses and high achievers. And you're looking at AI as, as potentially the the next example of genius out in the world where does that fascination with geniuses and with high achievers come from a genius is somebody
1: who has extraordinary intellectual abilities which they did not arrive at by means of deliberate practice and it arose from reading about uh, high achievers like einstein picasso people who are looked up to by all people in that profession and so that's where my penchant for high achievers. And what one can do is to study them, which is what I've done, study them by applying various psychological theories, such as Piaget's genetic epistemology, Gestalt psychology, Freudianism, and so on, and see how they thought. Try and get some indication into how they thought. There's a paradox here that I'm using psychological theories that were formulated from the thinking of average people. I'm applying that to
0: above average people. But again, you have to begin somewhere. It feels like in some of your work that you have a desire to find the formula for genius. And yet it feels like what unites the sorts of geniuses that you obsess about or are interested in is the fact that they're all completely different.
1: Yes, they're all completely different, but there is a fundamentality there in that they're all, they're all extremely smart. But one of the goals of my work is to try to get some handle on how they think. Although we can never think along at the level that they do,
0: how they work can help our thinking when it comes to genius Are you trying to find a quantitative value that points at genius? For example, the IQ test. We can say that if someone has a certain IQ above a certain value, therefore they are a genius. But sometimes what makes someone a genius isn't related purely to intelligence. When we look at genius and equate that to the obsession around artificial intelligence, is genius all about intelligence, or is there something else going on? Is some genius not always reliant? purely on intelligence, is it reliant, perhaps, on something like creativity? Well, creativity is
1: part of intelligence. I mean, intelligence is kind of a fuzzy thing. There are various sorts of intelligences, you know, emotional intelligence, scientific intelligence, and, and logical intelligence, musical intelligence, and so on. And that's of course related to creativity. I mean, there, there is a, uh, a difference between talent and creativity. Someone can be very talented, but not be creative. Someone can be a very talented piano player, doesn't make any mistakes but uh, you know there's something just missing in their in their rendition Well a, a creative pianist adds something to it and draws out what's in the score. The converse is true that if you're creative then you're somewhat talented okay uh, there have been highly creative musicians which have turned out not to be great pianists but you know they're not bad anyway yes machines have the capability of
0: genius thinking I mean genius is a way of, of, of thinking. Well, there was something so nice you said there about how you can be uh, an extremely talented pianist and play all the right notes in the right order at the right time. And I just wonder is that is that what we are with AI right now? They can replicate music, they can play all the right notes at the right time on the right beat, but they don't have that creativity to perhaps go slightly offbeat. You talk to drummers about the the, the um, creativity within how Ringo Starr used to drum. He used to drum off the beat, and yet machine-generated algorithms that are used in production software, music production software, demand often to put the drum beats on the beat, which would make the beat to sound absolutely awful. That's the embodiment problem too, is that
1: machines have to be embodied into robots so that they can uh, use their body when they play the piano. You see great uh, creative pianists, they're using, they put their body into it, their their, uh, their motions and, and so on, and instead of sitting straight up in a chair and just making sure you hit all the right notes. There is in my book a, a case where uh, a musical score is played by a machine and there's no emotion in it whatsoever. There's no loudness and softness and, and so on. And the same score is played by a pianist, it sounds entirely different. In fact, I think there was the experiment with uh, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. It was played by a machine. It was just plodding along, but played by a person who puts their body into it and
0: their empathy into it, etc. cetera. Uh, it, it sounds entirely differently. So you think to solve that problem of that ephemeral experience you get when you witness uh, human-created music or human-created artwork, all you have to do is ensure that the machine that is playing is embodied?
1: No, you want machine not only to be embodied, but to have emotions. You, know, we, you need emotions and consciousness for full creativity, whether it's doing
0: art, science, literature, and certainly music. What I'm really trying to ask you, Arthur, is do you think there is something special and unique about human beings that can never be replicated by machines, that can never be surpassed by machines? No, absolutely not. When you say human being, you're talking about human being right now, but human beings will
1: change and machines will pick up all of our characteristics. And indeed, when it gets to a point of artificial superintelligence and machines start reproducing themselves, there'll be some of our DNA in there, so to speak. We'll, we'll always be bound together. But no, there is nothing nothing special about human creativity. There's nothing special about us, which is an accident. I mean, uh, you know, some billions of years ago, an isotope of carbon just in the sun spit out uh, spit out atoms and landed on Earth, and here we are. I mean, there could be life forms elsewhere. I mean, this notion of looking at exoplanets for uh, the so-called Goldilocks zone. Life as we know it need not exist elsewhere in the universe.
0: I struggle to believe that there is nothing special about human beings, because in many cases, artists create artwork to express the nature of the human condition. It is a very human process to generate and create Artwork. Back in Babylonian times, the Babylonians had a, uh,
1: a cosmology. The Earth was the center. The Earth stood at the center. Planets moved around it, not that lasted until Copernicus and, and Galileo. Uh, the Earth has moved out of the center, the sun is in the center, but that was okay because th- th- that's our universe. But then the galaxy was, was revealed, and we're just one of many star systems, and now we have a multiverse. When Our, our universe is not even unique. So no, there's no reason why humans should be unique either. In fact, as I, I as I wrote at the at, at the end of my book, there will come a time when this whole enterprise will run down. The universe will run down, and the only thing that that might be left are robotic forms, and they'll be smart enough to know how to get into another universe. And once there, they'll land on a planet and may not be like ours. And they will have creation myths of their own, and this whole
0: process will start all over again. So there's no reason why we should be unique. Well, at the end of the book, you proffer some uh, challenging uh, notions of what the future may look like, and one of those is is the idea of the cyborg artist, uh, the combining of humans with AI or machinic parts. And I couldn't help but think, well, we already have cyborg artists today. We have individuals like Neil Harbisson, the colorblind artist who has an antenna that's surgically attached to his head. And the interesting thing about Neil is, even though he is a uh, colorblind individual, and the antenna allows him to Color. He defines it as an entirely new sense because what the antenna is actually doing is converting uh, light waves to sound waves, and then instead of putting those through the traditional oral senses of the ears uh, what it does is it vibrates his skull so he's experiencing this entirely new sensory modality and then he creates these artworks these uh, very colorful uh, representational paintings that only he can truly experience because they're sonic humans that don't have an antenna or individuals that aren't enhanced aren't able to have the same experience with an artwork as someone who has an antenna or has been enhanced can have are we going to get to the point where you're going to have to start enhancing yourself to experience the full spectrum of possible future artworks.
1: These artworks will be very difficult for us to understand right now at this time. I mean, even looking at electronic art, the best way to appreciate that is to know something about computers. You know, it isn't the sort of art that you see in, uh, you know, in, in Tate Britain, where you can walk up to it, put your hands behind your back, and look at it from various angles and see the, you know, paint swirls and things like that. AI art will be even more different than uh, electronic interactive art. We will be able to appreciate it. We have to change our mindset and realize that this is art not produced by a human being but by a machine. Then, as time goes on and we become closer to machines, and machines produce art that we might not understand at all, they will have to explain it to us, just as they will have to explain their own prose to us as well, in, in
0: order for us to uh, appreciate it. But will we have to actually fundamentally change our minds? Will we have to enhance our minds to be able to have the experience with a yeah, piece we'll, of AI-created we'll we we'll be artwork. transhumans by that time. Our modalities, et cetera, will be stimulated in a a variety of ways. Today, right now, as we're increasing our scientific knowledge about the world, as we're learning more and more about ideas like quantum mechanics and and weirdness and how things are extremely different when they go very, very small, how that's impacting the way in which artists will start to see the world. As far as as, as the
1: quantum world, uh, certainly to me, the quantum world is not weird. That's a mistake. That's something that people try and sell books with. But uh, it seems to us to be strange because it's against our Aristotelian intuition, which is that heavier objects fall faster than lighter ones, and they do, uh, except in a vacuum. And intuitions of that sort, that objects have a place and that's it. They're not disembodied. And in the quantum world, an electron can be everywhere until you make a measurement. Something that's interesting, which is to come yet, is art produced by quantum computers. Quantum computers are at a fairly rudimentary level now, but they will,
0: there's an awful lot of money behind them presently for financial purposes. Is that art that could be in every single gallery simultaneously until you observe it? <laughs> <Perhaps>. <laughs> could be,
1: very good. Could be. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thinking of getting a, a piece of art out of that machine, because you can't touch a quantum computer while it's, while it's working, Then, because you then destroy the entanglement.
0: So that's a problem that's yet to be solved. What is strikingly clear in the book is that you really do believe that our future machines will surpass human beings in terms of creativity, and that AI-generated art will exceed human artists' wildest imaginative dreams. Does this then mean artists become obsolete? Will we have the obsolescence of the human artist? Or will we constantly desire human created work because we will see machine generated work as something that comes from the Ancani Valley or or the Kitsch Valley? Could it be something that's well, very difficult for us to do? Even in
1: looking at the electronic art, a lot of people in electronic art call portraiture Uh, flat painting. (laughs) People doing brush and paint will go on. That will go on. That art will still be expensive to buy. So people will turn to uh, AI created art, which will be much cheaper. But there will be AI art done by machines by themselves. And then there'll be art done by human beings in conjunction with machines combining both
0: the unique aspects of both of them. Finally, I want to look at what you end the book with, which is this playful provocation that in actual fact, what may end up happening is when we subspeciate and some individuals become cyborgs, some individuals uh, choose to remain human, and then we have these AIs that then are able to transcend biological form and go off into the stars and populate other planets, uh, that they will be able to then finally create unhindered by the limitations that we've set ourselves here on Earth. How far do you actually believe that space exploration in itself will be a, a form of creative endeavor that is performed by our machine successors? These new forms of life, the, these cyborg forms of life, which may have
1: wet insides, uh, we don't know, but they will find a way to move into another universe. What I'm saying is that they will populate those planets. And there'll be maybe an Adam and an Eve to start a whole new race over of human beings. I mean, we may be like that, our our insides are wet, but we may be the the end result of a lot of experimentation. Or a lot of creativity. A lot of creativity too, yeah. Right now, the best way to do exploration, space exploration, is with robots. And it will continue that, that for a long time. The way to get to other star systems will only be through discovering a wormhole. People like that statement. Science, science fiction fans like that. Like it's, a,
0: it's, a, it's a beautiful idea, but you talk about these um, machine entities or these perhaps cyborg entities that in the future will go off and populate other planets. So I just wonder how space itself will change um, the way in which we create and generate work. How will we create artwork um, or sound even in vacuums of space? Those life forms of the far distant future
1: will be generated from us essentially. And so they will need gravity. They will need the uh, properties of the earth, whatever they may be, when they they leave.
0: Is it going to be a case of slow attrition? Are we in the mindset right now whereby we are so reluctant to see... Creativity within machines because we're scared of what that means. Precisely. And will it be a case of we will suddenly see this incredibly creative output, something that will uh, viscerally affect us so much like a great piece of artwork, and we will be surprised to learn that it was actually created not by a human but by a machine? Very much so, yeah. In the course when I lecture on this, sometimes I play uh, the
1: Bach game. You play two short excerpts of Baroque music, one of them was written by Bach, the other one was created by an algorithm. And you ask the audience, which one is written by Bach? And 50% of them will always get it wrong. And then, you know, you, you play with them a bit and you say, well, you know, I'm sure you chose the other option, the ones who chose the wrong one. You chose that option because it was somewhat melodious, somewhat beautiful, somewhat inspirational, just like Bach's music, but it's written by a machine. How did Bach do it? Can a machine write music of that quality? But that's the wrong question. Because... You want machines to go beyond that to produce music of their own, that'll blow our minds perhaps, like like Bach's music did. Bach was done by Bach, and I agree with researchers who disagree with placing too much emphasis on these Bach "bato or not" games that we play with and play with Bach in my lecture, and which some lecturers do ad nauseum with art and uh, poetry. Because this is the big point. We should not judge the work of an AI on the basis of whether it can be distinguished from work done by us, because what's the point? We want AIs to produce work that we presently cannot even imagine, that may seem to us meaningless and even nonsensical, but may be better than what we can produce.
0: Could it be the case that AI artists aren't there for our amusement, aren't there to blow human minds. In actual fact, they may create something which is uncomfortable to listen to, something that is viscerally that makes us sick or disturbed or disgusted. In actual fact, could that be the the, the paragon of AI art and it's just something that, you know what, us human beings don't find very appealing? Look at the music of
1: Stravinsky, (laughs) 12-tone music. it's a, It was a long move from Mozart to the Sex Pistols. I mean, that that they, that, that sort of music makes some people sick. Even uh, Beethoven's Eroica Third Symphony, people were very disturbed with that. That's truly a value a value
0: judgment. Will it uh, AI choose to create something that cannot be? Observed cannot be appreciated, cannot be read, cannot be seen, cannot by be us, listened mean, to by, by human beings yeah, and their human senses. That's right. They'll write music for themselves and for their brethren. W- will we even know if it's happening?
1: Well, no, we won't be able to judge that music. They'll be able to judge our music, but maybe by that time again, humans will be changing and we may have
0: uh, be in such a position that we can hear the frequencies that dogs hear. So until we, we become enhanced, I guess now we just have to sit and wait and, and see what happens with the future of this machine artwork. And to see how
1: we are transformed as well. I mean, we will be transforming along with machine output, along
0: with machi- how machines produce art. Those techniques will, will change. And on that note, Arthur, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you to Arthur for sharing his vision for how artwork might be created in the near future. You can find out more by purchasing his book, The Artist in the Machine, The World of AI-Powered Creativity, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.